All right, turn with me. Just one verse I want to read from the book of Proverbs, chapter 14. That will become the springboard text for this message, which I have titled, For God and Country. Proverbs 14, 34. The Bible says, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And that's all we need for the moment for our purposes today on this July the 3rd, one day before we celebrate here in America our independence from what the patriots and founders called British tyranny and the title of the message is For God and Country. That was the phrase that was on the capstone over the door where I went to school, elementary school. It's Catholic school, St. Joseph's School in Yonkers, New York. And it still says to this day, for God and country. Prodeo et patria. The idea being that we're training young people, of which at the time I was one, not only to know the Christ and God and so on, but to serve their country. And someone has said that the phrase can mean one of two things, that if you're serving God, you're serving your country. And then there's the other way around. If you're serving your country, you're serving God. I prefer the first, and I think it's more in line with the intent of what the founders said in not only documents such as the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, but many, many books and works that we need to read, you need to read if you haven't, and read original documents. They're out there. Library of Congress has them. Just read original documents for yourself. Prodeo et patria, or patria, for God and country. I have always believed this myself personally, that I was not only serving Christ all these years, I've stayed in America, haven't gone overseas. I still get a lot of invitations from all types of countries all over the world. I just never felt that God has called me to another country. Maybe in the future that may happen. Like I said, I've had a lot of invitations all over the world to come and do crusades and revivals and whatever. But I've always felt that my calling is naturally to Christ, but to America to Americans and American Christians. Some of you are familiar with the name Noah Webster. He is the one, the lexicographer, Noah Webster put together this ponderous volume we call Webster's Dictionary. If you look at the original, which I have in my office, I actually have two copies, it's this thick. Now today, of course, it's been amended a lot and changed. In Noah's Dictionary, you'll find that when he's describing a word, the original dictionary, There'll be a Bible verse to describe that word, where it's used in the same Bible we use, the King James Bible. But Noah Webster was also known as the schoolmaster of the Republic. And I want you to listen to some of the things that he wrote. Quote, he said, the religion which has introduced civil liberty is the religion of Christ and his apostles, which enjoins humility, piety, and benevolence, which acknowledges in every person a brother or sister, now listen to this, and a citizen with equal rights. If you were to read it, perhaps you may miss, because we're so used to calling each other brother and sister inside the walls of a church building, but here he was saying, this is how we talk in America. That when we say brother and sister, we're also acknowledging them as American citizens. This is genuine Christianity, Webster wrote. And to this we owe our free constitution, constitution is plural, that means of the states, of government to Christianity, mainly to Christ. And concerning education, Webster then wrote these words, 
The Christian religion is the most important and one of the first things in which all children under a free government ought to be instructed. First thing, instruct the children in Christ and in the Bible. No truth, Webster said, is more evident to my mind than that the Christian religion must, listen, must be the basis of any government intended to secure the rights and privileges of a free people. Webster believed that Christianity was the way to solve all the world's problems. And then he wrote this. He said, all the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. It is, I may say for me, it's irritating, especially now with social media being what it is, to read and occasionally to listen to someone talk about America and then pontificate on some point how it's not a Christian country, never was. Well, the argument could be made, I suppose, that it's no longer a Christian country exclusively, although the majority of the population still identifies with the Christian religion. But you can't make the argument intelligently that this country was not greatly influenced in its founding by the founders, and then later in the 19th century by others, by Christ and the Bible. No intelligent, honest person can make that argument. They can say, we don't like it, and we're going to change it, but to deny it is one of two things. It's an incredible, abysmal ignorance of our history, like it or not. Or it's just a flat-out denial of the facts. That the great majority of our founders were dedicated to the Bible. One can argue about their dedication, their lives, or whatever. But the precepts and the concepts of the Bible, of Christ, and so on, were there. And they are there. And that's why I say to you, if you're going to read history, read original documents. I've had more than one conversation, mainly with younger people, who have a bachelor's or master's degree in American history. And I say, is that so? And then we get into a conversation, or I provoke a conversation, and I'll ask them basic questions. Who is Jonathan Edwards? Never heard of him. Four years of undergraduate school, one year of postgrad school, hundreds of thousands of dollars of money to go to some of these prestigious universities, and never heard of Jonathan Edwards. What was the first great awakening? I mean, these are real conversations I've had. Didn't know. And on and on. Yet these are people, and I'm not saying bad people, just people, who are teaching your children about American history when they don't know. And I'm not blaming them because they've not been told or taught. I may go so far as to say even their professors may not have done the proper work. Reading a textbook about history is not the same as reading an original document written by the person, whether it's Jefferson or Franklin, Elias Boudinet, or all these people that we've never even heard of. Well, not we, but many Americans don't even know who these people are. They signed the Declaration of Independence. One would think if you had a master's degree in American history, at least you would be very well versed in these people, and they're not. Give you an example, as a rudimental drummer, I meet people now coming out of schools of percussion, and we get to talking again. They say, I just graduated school of percussion. I'm a percussionist, or maybe they say they're a drummer. I say, well, that's great. And talk about rudiments, like a lesson 25, or a paradiddle, or a flam paradiddle, or paraparadiddles, all of these different things. And I remember one young person told me, just graduated from a school of percussion, as a percussionist, which includes drumming, saying, yeah, I think I heard of them. And I'm astonished that so much money could be spent in a school of percussion 
and not know basic rudiments, which are stroke combinations that, well, I wouldn't say most drummers know, but some drummers, the good drummers definitely know them, the ones that you've heard in any genre of music. And so we have the same thing in our universities. People come out with a degree in American history, but we're not encouraged, perhaps, we're certainly not taught who these American figures are. And in the few conversations that I've had, they'd never even heard of these people. These people signed the Declaration of Independence, and you only know Jefferson and Franklin, whoever, Alexander Hamilton and John Adams. They signed the Constitution. Not all that signed the Declaration signed the Constitution, but we always come up with like four or five names, that's it. Do your own research and go and look at July 4th sermons from the 18th century and find out how many of them had this element that Noah Webster and others said that their religion, Christ, Christianity, and America was so intricately connected in their minds they couldn't separate the two. Now it's a different day. Some of you have heard of A.W. Tozer, pastor in Chicago in the 20th century, a very imposing figure, dedicated pastor, a very brilliant man, godly. He wrote these words, I'd like to read them to you in a work, an article entitled, The Gift of Prophetic Insight. Tozer wrote, what God says to the church at any given time period depends altogether upon her moral and spiritual condition and upon the spiritual need of the hour. Religious leaders who continue to mechanically expound the scriptures without regard to the current religious situation are no better than the scribes and lawyers of Jesus' day who faithfully parroted the law without the remotest notion of what was going on around them spiritually. The prophets never made that mistake, nor wasted their efforts in that manner. They invariably spoke to the condition of the people of their times. This, by the way, is why I prefer prayer, contemplation, meditation. I have a daily study of the Bible and books that I read to get the mind of the Lord for what to bring to you on Sunday, or the Bible study even. I prefer it, and I think it's the preferred method in my own opinion. Tozer was saying here that the prophets didn't just get up and say, you know, the church is in a real bad condition, Israel's in a real bad condition, but let me tell them about how to be successful in life. I'm still enamored by something I've been watching just because it intrigues me, though it's pretty sad. Our internationally known evangelist who now feels, I guess, a compelling interest in getting everybody on the keto diet because she cares about people. You can get advice on nutrition from a nutritionist and you can get advice on fitness from a fitness expert, but preachers are supposed to be preachers. They're supposed to preach the word of God. Whatever my opinion is on diets, that's private. My job is to preach the word of God. And my job is to apply the scriptures as best I know how and as best I can to the spiritual condition of the church, but not just the church here, but all that are watching. And now we have an audience that's around the world. That's my job. That's what Tozer was saying. And so, if there is a separation between God and country, as I shared it with you, the notion that to serve, and I'll say Christ, is also to serve your country, which is the way I have always viewed myself, that I have been giving service to my country by standing in this pulpit. That's how I view it. I don't care how other people view it. That's how I view it. That I've given longer service to my country than most people in the military. But I won't go into all that. For God and country, for Christ and country, let me share three things with you. And the first being that if there is a problem in the land, the pulpits of America are to blame. To take up an audience time about how to lose weight is not the gospel. That should be easy enough to figure out. 
And then all the aberrant doctrines that we are exposed to and other things is not to be in a Christian pulpit. What is to be in the Christian pulpit is the Bible says. Matter of fact, going back to this friend or this man that I know I was speaking yesterday, told me, he said, one of the reasons that I like listening to you is because you just say what the Bible says. And I told him, as I've told you and others, I can say with confidence that the Bible says because I didn't write it. I did not write the Bible. I struggle with passages just like everybody else, but I didn't write those words. God did. Let me just share this here. It's interesting, I think, and provoking. 1873, there is a second great awakening going on in the country. People are flocking back to church when the churches were almost empty before that revival or that awakening began. The premier figure is the once lawyer turned revivalist, then pastor Charles Finney. And I want you to listen to what he wrote. He said this, Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a great degree. If there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the public press, to me this is very interesting, here what we would call the media, whether it's the printed page of a newspaper or today television, which wasn't around in Finney's day. Listen, if the public press lacks moral discrimination, which in my opinion it certainly does, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses its interest in religion, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Satan, listen to this, this is 1873. If Satan rules in our halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundation of our government are ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. Let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay it to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation. 1873, many, many years have gone by now, and we see the words of Charles Finney have come to pass. I won't take the time today, we have done that in Bible studies and so on, to trace the history of the church in America, let alone in Europe. As it declines, as the word of God is no longer highly esteemed, as the church goes, the society goes right behind it. And then as the church becomes irrelevant, or as Jesus would say, salt, when it's no good, it's just to be cast out and people can trot on it, doesn't make a difference, it's no longer salt, the world goes trampling right over it. There is no restraints. We can vote, we can blog, we can text, we can do all these things, we can raise our voices and object as an American citizen. We object to this. But God still shakes his head and says, that's not my way. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek, seek my face, turn from the wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land. Amen. The responsibility, first of all, is on the pulpit. Not the church, that's second. It's on the pulpit. And that's why, you know, when I solicit your prayers, I don't usually put out a brief thing weekly, keep your prayers coming, because you have no conception of the stress and the spiritual warfare that goes on over this pulpit, this one here, not even to mention all the thousands around the world, this one here. 
I need to be supported by your prayers. Every time you think of my name and my family, my wife, children, so on, lift them up in prayer. Because if this church here, this local church here, would go awry doctrinally, that would be on me. That means I have defected from the faith. Most of you are clever enough to leave. But doctrine strange to the Bible, which we see again, just turn on your television set today to some so-called Christian station, and you will see it. Tens of thousands of people being led astray by aberrant doctrine and strange doctrine. Ezra the scribe says he was a ready scribe. And in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10, it says this, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. So we'll call him a preacher. And he's going to have a pulpit. We're going to read it. But he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. Now, what everybody else did, how could he possibly know? But he said, I'm going to seek the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Ezra, as you know, along with Nehemiah, is coming back from 70 years of captivity. And decrees are given to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple, which had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And then just laid to waste for almost a century. 70 years, and he prepared his heart to seek the Lord. So we call him a preacher. In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, the walls were barely finished, and the people were already falling away from the Lord. The lessons had not been learned. Nehemiah 8, verse 1, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose." Beside him stood Mattatiah and Shema and Aniah and Uriah and Hilkiah and Maasiah on his right hand and on his left Pediah, Mishael, Micaiah, Hashem, Heshbadana, Zechariah and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above the people and when he opened it all the people stood up. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. That's preaching. Ezra did not have any advice for them about how to exercise. And I doubt he talked about it privately, given the times he lived in. But the pulpit, as Finney noted, and as we see here in the scriptures, is responsible for what is going on in the local church. And then we can broaden that to say what is going on in the country, and then what is going on in the world. God writes in Isaiah 55, he says, My word shall not return unto me void. It will accomplish that for which I've sent it. That doesn't mean it's always going to work out the way A, God would have it, in the sense of wanting to do good for people, save them, or B, the way we would have it. But it won't return void. It will accomplish what it has been set out to do. So number one, if in serving God, we can do good to this nation, as we once had in the founding of the nation... The pulpit is most responsible. Let me just share something I've shared just recently with you because it bears the point at this stage of this message. Here, back in the days when there was cassettes, here's four Bible students 
all in a Bible college, young men. And one of them who went to our church at the time said, hey, let's put in this message by my pastor. I don't know what the message was on, but whatever the message was on, probably something similar to what you're hearing today, the three other Bible students, all of them going to go out into the ministry, and presumably they're in ministry today somewhere, objected to the message, not the content that I was airing in doctrine, but you can't say that on a Sunday morning. Why? I'll tell you why. Because in the college, they had been being taught, and I assume are still being taught, how to draw a crowd. It's easy to draw a crowd. There's many ways to draw a crowd. And preachers, in case you don't know, have a habit of counting ears rather than noses. And so you talk about how many you've got in this church, and it's rather imposing. But let me say to you, there's a difference between building muscle mass and something being swollen. Some people have very big legs, for example, but they contain a lot of water, retaining water. That doesn't mean they're muscular or healthy. And it's not amusing, but it's provocative to think young men who, again, I assume are in ministry somewhere, objected to the preaching of the gospel on a Sunday morning because they were being taught by their professors with Bible degrees and THDs and all of this that that's not what you want to do. Right here in the local church, not that far away. One of the elders came in and told the younger people as well, you can't sing the hymns anymore. And basically told them, just throw the hymns out and get contemporary. Well, I'm a musician. I like contemporary music. I have a broad range of appreciation for music, but I still love the hymns. And not only that, but there's a lot of older people who grew up on those hymns around the country that basically you're saying, since you're old, you are irrelevant. We don't want to appeal to you and so on. Well, these young people, they took them up. I've never been able to understand. Maybe you can explain to me and I'll say, oh, I get the point why people would go out, mostly young women, go out and buy jeans that are all slashed up. <laughs> pay over $100 for them when my mother either put patches on them or made me throw them out. But that's how they began to appear on the platform, actually boasting, hey, this is not your grandfather's worship. Because that's what they were told by their relative. And in general, you know, people trust those that have been around a while. But let me say something to you. You heard the statement, trust but verify. The book of Job says, because someone has white hair doesn't mean that they're wise. It just means they've lived. Some people have lived the same life, the same year, over and over again for 80 of them. They've never progressed. And if you will read the Bible, and you will study the Bible, and you will take time to prayer, then you'll know if the Bible is being taught or not. You'll be able to discriminate. In any case, the pulpit is responsible. Secondly, if we would make the assumption that the pulpit is cutting it straight and things are still going wrong in the land, in the church, then the people are responsible. You and I are acquainted with the once saved, always saved doctrine. Me, after all these years, I still don't quite comprehend the method of God calling someone to salvation, and I'm comfortable with that. I don't have some um, fraternity that I have to return to and discuss how ignorant all the other Christians are, but how we know the truth. I mean about that particular area. Yet, what has been categorically called Calvinism, and people that will say, listen, it's not about works, it's about grace. Well, the Bible does say that, but it also says that we are to show a pattern of good works. And Jesus talked about, and Paul talked about, and the apostles talked about the fact that when you have grace, you are definitely changed. And it becomes evident. I want to read to you something about the subject of Calvinism from somebody who certainly should know something about Calvinism. 
from John Calvin. He wrote this on living the Christian life. Quote, this is the place to address those who, having nothing of Christ but the name and the sign, this is John Calvin, would yet be called Christians. How dare they boast of this sacred name? None have intercourse with Christ but those who have acquired the true knowledge of him from the gospel. The apostle denies that any man truly has learned Christ who has not learned to put off the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and put on Christ. Ephesians 4.22 They are convicted therefore of falsely and unjustly pretending a knowledge of Christ. Whatever be the volubility and eloquence with which they talk of the gospel, he says, doctrine is not an affair of the tongue, but of the life. I want you to keep in mind, this is John Calvin. It is not apprehended by the intellect and memory merely, like other branches of learning, but is received only when it possesses the whole soul and finds its seat and habitation in the inmost recesses of the heart. Let them therefore either cease to insult God by boasting that they are what they are not, or let them show themselves not unworthy disciples of their divine master. To doctrine in which our religion is contained, we have given the first place, since by it our salvation commences, but it must be transfused into the breast and passed into the conduct, and so transform us into itself as not to prove unfruitful. Listen to this, still Calvin, right? Speaking or writing, if philosophers are justly offended and banished from their company with disgrace, those who, while professing an art which ought to be the mistress of their conduct, convert it into mere loquacious sophistry, meaning they just talk a lot about, we'll say, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and so on. Socrates was the one who said he would not accept any student or disciple to follow him who did not, from the very beginning, say that I know that I don't know. That was his requirement. And many philosophers, in fact, look at master level musicians for one, not everybody gets into the master class because they're just not there. That's what he's saying here. If philosophers are justly offended and banished from their company with disgrace, those who while professing an art, which ought to be the mistress of their conduct, convert it into mere loquacious sophistry, with how much better reason shall we detest those flimsy sophists? who are contented to let the gospel play upon their lips when, from its efficacy, it ought to penetrate the inmost affections of the heart, fix its seed in the soul, and pervade the whole man a hundred times more than the frigid discourses of philosophers. John Calvin. Someone says I'm a five-point Calvinist. That's fine with me. Or four or three. That's fine with me, too, because I've already admitted I don't completely understand how God works in the mystery of salvation. But I do know this. John Calvin never said, don't worry about your works, don't worry about your conduct, it's all by grace. That wasn't his doctrine, and that was not the doctrine of the reformers. If the pulpit is straight and the people do not respond, then the pulpit is not responsible anymore. The people are. Jeremiah 25, verse 4, And the Lord hath sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened, nor inclined your ear to hear. We know... <laughs> From reading the book of Jeremiah, it wasn't Jeremiah that was wrong. But no matter what God sent, not just Jeremiah, but other prophets, the people simply wouldn't listen. And they kept turning, not their face to the Lord, but their back. Jeremiah 44, verses 4 and 5. Howbeit I sent unto you all my servants the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not this abominable thing that I hate. 
but they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear to turn from their wickedness, to burn no incense unto other gods. Jeremiah 29, 19. Because they have not hearkened to my words, saith the Lord, which I sent unto them by my servants the prophets, rising up early and sending them, but you would not hear, saith the Lord. And then as we go on and we read through, we know that's when the judgment of God came upon Judah. Many years ago now, well, over 20, I think, I was invited with a few other pastors to go to a television station in Pennsylvania. And two of us were asked to speak at the devotional period, the chapel service that they had for the employees. So there was about 40 employees. And in the car ride out, one of the pastors, a friend of mine, said to me, he said, you know, I just feel like I'm not supposed to speak. So he had one part, I had the other part. He said, I'm going to give the whole time to you. And it was a short period of time. And I said, okay, fine. And I still didn't have any text. I didn't know what I was going to say. But that day, I spoke to those people that were there whom I did not know one of them. And they were so affected by what I said that they invited me to come back for a telethon, which is a money-raising operation. I told them, I'm not your guy. I'm not good at it. I don't do that. But they said, Pastor Barnett, we prayed about it, that you're to be there. You're the man to be there. I was still reluctant, but I said to them, all right, but here's the thing. I'm not going to go out and tell people, hey, give your money, and then God's going to give you all this stuff, and you could have animals and tigers, because one of the guys that came on later on raised a whole lot more money than I did because of that very thing. He's got a zoo and all this stuff. Good for him. You want to go to a zoo, there's one in the Bronx, there's one in San Diego, you don't need it in your backyard. But these guys claim that this is what God does, and do you have a zoo? Do you live in a compound with walls? No, well check out the people that you may be listening to, see how they live. Me? You can just drive by my house, see how I live. So the cameras went on. I was I'd be there two nights. First night I shared my testimony, how I got saved. The phones were jammed, every single one of them. People who were mentally distressed and suicidal and the uh, floor director had to keep putting a sign in front of me, tell them to keep calling and hang on and all that. So I did. But the second night I preached a message similar to this one here. To the end that I said, if we as a nation are going to live the way other nations have lived, we cannot escape the judgment of God. And it was a half hour message or so. On the broadcast that night was me, the unknown and then there was an exceptionally well-known Christian singer over here. If I mentioned his name, most all of you would know who he was, who he is. We had one car to go back to the hotel. It was he, myself, and my wife. And he turned to me in that drive home, and he said to me, he said, you know, Pastor, the more I listened to you talk, or when I began to listen to you talk, rather, he said, I just said to myself, just another phony. He said, but the more that you spoke, he said, the more I was convinced that you really believed this. He said, I called my wife a little earlier. And I said to her, honey, I finally found a man of God. Now, I'm not going to mention the names of who he has sang for and has since sung for, but they're the people you see on television. And this is what he said to me. Now listen, I'm not mentioning his name or the other people. And my wife was there. She's a witness to this. He said, you know, Pastor, I've sang in all their churches. I've been on their yachts. I've been in their big houses, he told me. I've been at their pool parties and all that. He said, I've been there. And he says, and I'm telling you, they're all phonies. And that was his words, not mine. I held my own opinion up to that point, but that's what he told me. Well, the other guy came. His name you may know as well. He raised so much money by telling people falsehoods. It's like Barnum and Bailey Circus. I mean, at least they give you something that was actually really. But this is a sideshow where the smoke and mirrors goes on. 
And people will pay money to be entertained. But the pulpit must be straight. That's number one. Listen to this, 2 Chronicles 36, 15. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets. Listen, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. I could promise you a remedy, but if God has already said or set in his mind that there is no remedy, there is no remedy. We must not entertain a false hope for ourselves or for our nation that we can accomplish some type of national morality that's going to bring us to utopia or bring back the old days. We should not entertain any type of delusional thinking that that can be accomplished without us returning to the Bible, returning to the Word of God, which I'm going to say to you, we do our part, preacher, people, whatever, but the results are in God's hands. If he doesn't send his spirit, every one of my words just fall right to the ground. That's why we pray. Oh, God, touch us. Look, at, if you want to be entertained, there's probably a thousand channels on cable television to entertain you. You come here, presumably, to hear the word of God, the ways of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the principles of Scripture. And let me say, lastly, there's preachers that have pulpits, and then there's the people, obviously, who listen. But also there's church leaders who are not necessarily preachers, either because they really were never called to preach, but they're in some position of authority, or they're in a position of authority and they just don't teach or preach. They do administrative things. So I want to say that if God and country are not served well by the church, pulpit is responsible, people are responsible, then church leaders are responsible. In Numbers chapter 16, I begin at verse 1, now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly. So think of elders to the tune of 250 elders. But there's more. They were famous in the congregation. Think of all the famous preachers, perhaps. That would be a way to do it. Think of all the famous preachers, 250 of them all come together against one man, Moses. When you have that many witnesses against you, it's not looking too well for Moses. But remember, Moses is a true man of God. They were not. 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. That means they had reputations and they were well respected. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then, lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Who are you is what they're saying. You know who we are? We're men of renown. We're famous. People respect us. We're elders. We're Bible scholars. We're prayer word, whatever they were. And who are you? But please keep in mind this principle of true ministry. Anyone, and I'm not saying that I was smart enough, but anyone who honestly knows what ministry is all about is going to be reluctant to go. Who wants to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go? He's had them for 400 years. Moses said, I can't speak. You know, we've all made excuses why we can't be somewhere, why we can't go somewhere. And it's not exactly precisely the truth. Well, Moses did something similar when God called him. He said, I don't speak well. And God wasn't happy. 
So he said, well, fine. Your brother can speak well. So I'll put the words in your mouth and you put them in your brother's mouth and he'll do the talking, but you're going to go. <laughs> in a manner of speaking, that's real ministry. Nowadays, prophets get out of these real big limos and you know, comfort and luxurious lifestyles. They raise money because the old Learjet needs to be replaced by a new Learjet. The other one was flying perfectly fine, but you're not a king's kid if you're not in the latest Learjet. And so on. These things go on if you don't know that. Moses did not ask for this, and he didn't want it. Jonah, well, he's a good example of reluctant to preach. <laughs> Go to the Assyrians and tell them to repent. And he said, I'm not going. <laughs> he goes down to Tarshish. He gets on his ship. All of a sudden, what does God do? He starts to rock the boat. <laughs> and finally, Jonah did have compassion on these fellow seamen. When they said, we don't understand. They were throwing their gods overboard and whatever. They didn't know. And Jonah says, I'm a prophet of the Lord. And this trouble has come upon us because me and I'm running from God. And it's interesting, the compassion that the seamen had for Jonah when he said, throw me overboard. They didn't want him. They just started throwing other stuff. Then they finally said, do what he says. And there he goes. But it's also equally interesting that God provided, you know, was it a whale, whatever, a big fish, that's impossible. Well, of course, God is God of the impossible. He created everything. But why do we listen to these sophists? They say, well, it couldn't have been a whale or a big fish because then they go through the juices in the stomach. I've had a lot of things in my stomach that the juices never affected. It stayed there. <laughs> if you know what I mean. And God took the great fish and spit him up on the shore. He says, now go preach. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He says, if I do the gospel willingly, then I have a reward. But if I do it against my will, it's because I am constrained. Jeremiah, at one point in time, you may remember, said, I was determined never to speak again. Every time I speak is trouble. The elders don't listen. The other so-called prophets don't listen. The kings are ready to kill me. I'm not going to talk about this no more. Let them have their country. Let them have their judgment. But then something strange happens. And he says, but when I determined that, it was shut up in my bones. It was like a fire. David said that he determined he wasn't going to speak, but he couldn't hold it in. He couldn't stop, couldn't prevent himself. You know, that God would grant us that type of preaching today. That God would raise up people out of his own church or wherever he's going to raise them up from. He is God. That would preach the word of the Lord, the gospel. One that you can go home and look it up. Without these mystics that we have that say, well, you know what God told me? And they talk for an hour on something that isn't even in the Bible. God help us. God help us in America. In my opinion, when a nation gets to the point that a human life growing in the womb is now a woman's choice, and then people start to mince the words and slice things so fine, and say, well, I'm not pro-abortion, I'm just pro-choice. When a rabbi who I read his tweet states, when people are no longer breathing, they're dead, you know, and so we have funerals and we bury them, and so the baby in the womb is not breathing, so it's not alive. Basically saying, just don't worry about it, a rabbi. We do not need rabbis like that. Amen. We don't need preachers and teachers like that. Amen. We need the so-called sanctity of life to respect life. Amen. Some of you may have seen my post, something attributed to Billy Graham. Everybody is afraid of offending someone except God. I can't offend this group, that group, this group, that group. Certain words that we use growing up, not vulgar words, just certain words. Can't use them anymore. Everybody gets offended. But we can offend God. God damn it. Or Jesus Christ. Huh? You hear it regularly, so do I. 
I hear from young people who were never taught the word. And maybe if they were, it would stop them. I don't know. But you know what I'm saying? He says not to use his name in vain. Certainly not to use it as a vulgar curse word. And we use his name in reverence. I had another man write to me some time ago, two years ago it was. I don't know why he did this. He was well-educated, former principal of a school. He had an objection to one of my posts, and I knew him for 56 years and his family. One day, he just appears in my timeline, insulting me, insulting my friends. And I told him, I'm not going to mention his name. He was literally dying in the hospital overseas. And I solicited all of you and others that were here at the time to pray for this man, and God granted him life. And I put it publicly on the post. I said, we pray for you, and I pray for you in private. God will spare your life, and this is how you treat me? I never found out what got into his head or into his heart to do that. But this is what he said about my Bible. I said, well, so-and-so, the Bible says, well, the Bible is sacred to some, not to others. And that's why I told him it's sacred to me, and I blocked him. Someone I knew who grew up with for 56 years. I knew this man. He's passed away now. And I have come to wonder in my heart, was it an act of God? I'm not saying it was but it came very close upon his unusual behavior. Church leaders, they come up against Moses here. You know the rest of the story. If you don't read it in Numbers chapter 16, Moses says, you're accusing me and my brother Aaron here, the high priest. He told the people, if these men here, they die the way all people die, sickness, disease, natural causes, you'll know that I've not spoken, but they die an unusual death. Then you know that this is the word of the Lord. And so the ground opens up. They perish. Their tents go, families, everything. It's pretty, it's a lot of drama. And then if there is, you know, what can be called humor, after these people perish in an unusual earthquake, the people still blame Moses. Did you read it? You killed the people of God. I mean, in ministry sometimes, no matter what you do, you don't win. Except in one way, being faithful to God. All the time, every day, being faithful to God, because in the end, that's really all that matters. Amen. Being faithful to God. People are capricious, they're whimsical, they change their minds. One day you're a hero. David was a hero. Saul slew thousands, David 10,000. You're a hero, you're a hero, you're a hero. And then there was a mishap at Ziklag, and the enemy comes in, Just kill him. He's the fault, he's the one. You're a hero? That's people. If you're living to please people, you will be sadly disappointed in life. You will have more grief than you should have if you're living to please people. Live to please God. In my view, I hold it as my view, for me to serve God is also to serve my country. And I always point to my father's flag that draped his coffin. He was in the Second World War. He was in the Korean War, 13 years at sea. My father had seven brothers. Every one of them was in the Second World War at the same time, eight boys. And my grandfather had died at the age of 38, so my grandmother was all by herself. And it was a different generation. My father was not a religious man, a Bible man. But those of us who are older, you cannot help but to start to compare notes and see the degeneration all around us. The question is, what are we going to do? Now, keep in mind that over the communion services that we have, I always try to point out to you, we think in terms of sin as what we're doing. We shouldn't commit adultery, so don't. We shouldn't steal and lie, and we don't. But remember that when God assigns to us something to do in the scriptures, to not do it is a sin of omission. 
And so we have to come, I believe, like Isaiah did in the sixth chapter, where it says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord. Isaiah was a godly king, and now Isaiah knew there was going to be bad times behind his death. But notice he says, In the year that King Isaiah died, he sees the event, I saw also the Lord. He was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. He talks about the smokes and the movement of the doorposts. And about him the angels crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Amen. Then he hears the Lord speak. And he says, Who shall go for us? And whom shall we send? Isaiah said, As you must say, Hear my Lord, send me. Don't think that Isaiah was any more enthused about that calling than Moses, Jonah, or anybody else was. Because by tradition we learn or hear or read that Isaiah was sawn in half for his efforts. It's very tough to build a Bible school on saying you're all going to die. But that's exactly what Jesus said to the apostles. And I feel, as this t-shirt says, an obligation to the truth. You say, I don't like what you said today, Pastor, but I didn't write it. Most everything I gave you was a quotation from somebody else, a preacher, or from the Bible itself. And I'm not saying that I like the times we live in, I don't. We are living in very tempestuous spiritual combat. The question is, what will you do? First thing, straighten out yourself. I believe this, I truly do. I have no right to speak to anybody, A, in a condescending term. You know who I am? Who cares who I am? But I am what I am by the grace of God. So that brings me to the second point. Whatever I am that's good, I owe that to Christ. I owe that to God. So we speak to people and invite them to know the Christ that we know. Invite them to the communion table. Invite them to read and study the Bible, the Word of God, and so on. You see, for most all my adult life, I've always believed that the answer, as Finney pointed out, and so did Webster and others, that the answer to our nation lies right here. In its prayer meetings, in its preaching and teaching, and then when you go out, you go out into the mission field. You may live only over here in that county and that little city and over here, and then some of you travel to get here. That's your mission field. That's where you go. And you pray, and you ask God. In my mind, that's the only hope America has. Amen. We keep electing people who not only do worse things, but they fight and they steal, they lie, and on and on and on. The question is, as we go to prayer, what will you do? And I wonder if your heart is like mine in this respect. I can say all of my adult life, I always felt I was not only serving God in this pulpit, but my country. And I wonder today if... You feel the same or see it the same way. You don't have to. I'm just wondering. I have always seen my call to both God and my country. So I want to pray with you today that God would have mercy on our nation. And then within yourself, answer the question, what am I going to do? And I just, you know, I adjure you, don't put it on Pastor Ray. Pray for me that I preach correctly and I'm strengthened and spared from the things that come upon my life and my wife's life. But it's not about one man, it's about us about what you're called to do in doing it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today in Jesus' mighty name. We all know, we all agree, even those who don't have a Bible or don't want to look at it know that we're on the wrong path here in America. But diverse opinions, but your book is clear. Jesus is the answer. Not a ceramic Jesus, but the real risen Jesus. We make an appeal to you, O oh Father, that you would hear and you would send us another great awakening which only you can do. We must be prepared. We must be able to say, here, my Lord, send me. But still, it has to come from your hands. 
So we make this prayer, God, an appeal to you to pour out your spirit again on America. We don't deserve your mercy, but that's what we're asking for. Have mercy on us, O God. Drive back the evil. Drive it away from our homes, from our families, from our personal lives, from our minds. Turn it away, O God. Send your spirit. Send your word. Raise up, no matter how reluctant a preacher may be, or a pastor may be, or an evangelist may be, or a missionary may be, raise up people who will speak the word. And then, Lord, only you know the hearts of your people sitting here today, what's going on inside their heart. I don't know. But I do pray for them that they would say, okay, Lord, enough of the games, enough of the duplicity, enough of the back and forth, left and right. Here am I. Send me. Cause us, God, to be a people of prayer, not someone who prays once in a while or when we're in trouble or we need money. Help us to be an actual person of prayer. Father, I just ask you today in Jesus' name, make us the people of prayer, people of the word, people of the book, and help us, God, to live to please you. If people are pleased, that's a bonus. And if they're not, we weren't expecting it. We're just expecting people to be saved. Oh, God, we thank you. And we bless you today for all that you have done. And we pray as we were taught, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth the way it's done in heaven. And it will be. And we thank you. And we bless you for this hope, or this blessed hope that we have. And God, move us here at Time for Truth to be part of the harvest. Everyone moving in concert, in unity. Just ask you, God, to continue to pour out your spirit on your people. Bring us to that place, God where you want us to be. This week, remind us to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, all of the strength, also to love one another, love each other. We will not neglect to give you all the praise, give you all the glory, give you all the honor. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen? Amen.